is stuck in a prison cell in a new city. But soon an earthquake strikes to make the chains fall off and the doors open wide. On The Bible Brief. We're so excited to get our new app into your hands in 2024. The Prism app is coming. A new audio-video experience to help you learn the Bible on your smartphone. Are you excited for the app? Shoot us an email and we'll put your name on the top of the list for access to the beta. Email us at biblebrief at biblelit.org or tap the link in the show notes. The Jerusalem Council settled the question. Not only do Christians not need to be circumcised, but they also don't need to follow the law of Moses. The controversy gave way to liberty within the church that hadn't been known to a significant degree among the Jews since the Sinai Covenant was ratified at around 1500 BC. Since that time, the Israelite nation had been beholden to keep the law in order to experience blessing in the land of Canaan. The formula was easy to understand, even if it was impossible to follow wholly. Obedience to the law meant blessing in the land, and disobedience to the law meant cursing away from the land. Yet now, now that Jesus had come, things were different. Following the law of Moses was not required for Christians. Instead, the law of Moses gave way to the law of Christ, alternatively called the law of the spirit of life, a law with a lighter burden and a weightier goal. Because instead of minute purity laws, sacrificial laws, and social laws, the law of Christ is composed of spiritual principles. Principles that can be summarized like this. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. This law of love is a law with considerable liberty in its fulfillment. Perhaps a modern person might even say that it's not a law at all, given that love's definition is so sentimental and personal. But this would be a mistake. The law of love doesn't exist in a vacuum. In fact, arguably, to understand all the facets of love, one would have to plumb to the very depths of God himself. Because it's in him that we discover what love is. It's in his interactions with his people through the whole Hebrew Bible that we discover what love is. It's in his laws that he gave to the nation of Israel that we see applications of God's love for corrupt humans. It's in the incarnation of the Son of God that we see love in perhaps its greatest clarity. At the end of the day, it's in all the scriptures that we discover the full definition of this law of love. This is, in fact, one of the main purposes of studying the Bible in general. We discover who God is, we discover who we are, and we discover the road of love that God would have his people travel upon. This law of love is empty and arbitrary if love isn't defined how God himself defines it. And this love is poignantly expressed by the Apostle Paul in a famous letter like this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, 
endures all things. Now, where did Paul learn this? Well, he learned it through his lifetime of study in the scriptures. He learned it on the road to Damascus when Jesus appeared to him. And he learned it as the Holy Spirit continued to work in his life, making him look more and more like Jesus. Paul understood this law of Christ. And instead of preaching the old law of that old covenant, he now preached this law of love, where Christians could practice liberty in their life under the principles of God's love. Now the church preaches this law of love not to try to be righteous before God, because Christians are already righteous by virtue of Jesus taking our sin upon himself and giving us his perfect righteousness. No, we preach the law of love because love is what our master does and what he commands of us. Love is our act of praise for everything God has done for us and for everything he has yet to do. After the pivotal council at Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, 300 miles north of Jerusalem, and they continued ministering there for a time. After a while, however, Paul departed with another man named Silas to go back to many of the churches that he and Barnabas had visited on that first missionary journey. Once again off to sea, they went to several places, including Lystra, where Paul had previously been stoned. But there at Lystra, rather than meeting resistance like in their prior visit, they were able to have fellowship with the church in the city. Soon they met a young believer named Timothy, who had a good reputation and a good knowledge of the scriptures. Paul saw Timothy as a potentially useful ministry partner, and he asked that he accompany them for a while as they continued to visit churches in other cities in the region. But then Paul does something with Timothy that should cause us some pause. Paul took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that Timothy's father wasn't a Jew. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now what Paul did with Timothy should perhaps strike us as odd. Didn't the Jerusalem council just conclude that Gentiles didn't have to be circumcised? Why then is Paul, who so fervently defended freedom from the law of Moses, why is he now circumcising Timothy? What gives? Well, here's the clue. The answer lies in the law of Christ rather than in the law of Moses. We might pose this question. If Paul wanted to reduce the most amount of barriers to Jews hearing the gospel, what might he do with his Gentile companion? The answer is simple. Since the Jews wouldn't associate with an uncircumcised Gentile, the circumcision of Timothy would remove a huge barrier to sharing the gospel with them. Paul wasn't forcing the law of Moses upon Timothy. No, instead he was taking the law of love and applying it to ministry toward the Jews removing barriers by following a custom of the hearers. That is what Paul was doing. In a letter later sent by Paul to a large church, he said this to illustrate how love informs the means of sharing the gospel. He said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself servant to all, that I might win more of them to Jesus. 
To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you hear the heart of this Christian example for all believers? His love makes him a servant, just as Jesus was a servant. His love makes him adopt the customs of the Jews to reduce barriers to their hearing. His love makes him abandon the very same customs to reduce the barriers to Gentiles' hearing. His love makes him all things to all people, so that by all means he might save some through his preaching. Love, as God defines it, is the principle for the Christian life, even if the application of love differs based on the context. Paul, Silas, and Timothy continued traveling through the region, strengthening the churches and sharing the gospel with all who would hear. They got to see the fruit of the first journey of Paul and Barnabas, and surely they enjoyed encouraging and informing the brothers and sisters in Christ of all the happenings in the church at large. But soon, these men's plans were interrupted by a vision that Paul had in the night. A vision where Paul saw a man saying to him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul, understanding that this was no normal dream, immediately began making plans to go to Macedonia to follow the call of God upon them. And before long, they found themselves in the city of Philippi, a leading city within the region and a Roman colony. Now, many days after arriving, they began to share the gospel with a woman named Lydia, and she quickly believed and was baptized before inviting these men to stay at her home. Their ministry finally had its beachhead moment in the city, and from Lydia's home they could continue their efforts with a more firm footing in the community. Soon, however, they didn't find themselves in Lydia's home, but in the city's prison. Paul had bothered the wrong people. There had been a demon-possessed slave woman following them throughout the city, and Paul cast out the demon in the name of Jesus. Now, this was surely a wonderful event for the woman, but to her owners who had been enriched by this demon's fortune-telling through the woman, they saw it as a loss. These owners then convinced the city's officials to do something about it, so they beat Paul and Silas, threw them in prison, and fastened their feet in stocks. It was later that night that the sounds echoed from the prison walls as all the prisoners heard. These men, who'd been beaten badly, bloodied and bruised. The prisoners heard their voices as they sang in worship to God. In this darkest of places, the melodies of these Christians were as light to every heart. And soon, another sound. The prison shook with the earthquake, and all the prison doors of each cell creaked open giving all the prisoners opportunity to escape their dark quarters, given that their hands and feet were unbound as well. It was an opportunity 
for a heavenly jailbreak. The earthquake didn't just shake the prisoners, though. It shook the jailer awake as well, who immediately saw the huge problem that he had. The doors were wide open, and his Roman superiors would have his head for this. He'd failed at his job. Surely all the prisoners had fled. And so the jailer drew his sword to do the deed himself, hoping perhaps to decrease the pain that he might feel from another's sword. But just before he thrust himself through, a voice rang out in the prison. Paul said, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them up to his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The love of these Christians, Paul and Silas, didn't just extend to the Jews. It extended even to the jailer who'd kept them locked up. Love meant not leaving the prison, even when the opportunity was there. Love meant sharing the words of life to the jailer who'd locked them in stocks only hours before. Love meant obeying God's command to make disciples of all nations, even if one of these disciples was the jailer and his family in Philippi. God's ways and His methods are not like ours, because God's way is a way of love, a way that puts on human flesh and dies on a cross to make salvation possible, a way where the teacher washes the feet of the students in humility, a way of love forged by Jesus before He bids each one of us, follow me. The Bible Brief is brought to you by the Bible Literacy Foundation, dedicated to helping people like you learn the Bible. Copyright Bible Literacy Foundation 2023